welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with Wendy. Welcome back. Thank you. It's been a while. It feels like it's been ages since we've recorded a podcast, so I hope I remember how to do this. I hope so too. Um, If you're just joining us, this is the third season of our podcast, uh, and it's the first episode of this season. Our first season was called The Portuguese Way, and it traced our pilgrimage from our house in Lisbon to Santiago. Our second season was called More Portuguese Ways, and this traced our pilgrimage from Tavira on the south coast of Portugal all the way to Santiago and to Finisterre on a series of Caminos in mostly Portugal and also in Spain as well. And so now we are up to our third season. It's called Caminos and More, and today is the More. Yes, because we recently did a walk, which is not a Camino de Santiago. It does not lead to Santiago, and it's yeah not in any way associated with any kind of pilgrimage. Uh, but it is nevertheless a long-distance walking trail in Portugal that a lot of people uh, come to through the Camino. They find out about it because they're a Camino enthusiast and they walk the Portuguese Camino and then they realize that there's also this other thing, which is called the Rota Vicentina. Right, and so this is a walk in the southwest of Portugal, in the Alentejo and Algarve regions of Portugal. It's about 220 kilometers. And as you said, it's not a Camino, but it does have associations with with the Camino and with pilgrims. Uh, for example, on the Camino de Santiago Forum, there is a subforum for the Rota Vicentina, even though it's not a Camino. Um, and there are ways that you can connect it with some of the southern Caminos that are developing in Portugal now as well. It's interesting that you say that some people maybe walk a Portuguese Camino and then find out about the Rota Vicentina and then maybe come and walk that. Actually, for us, it was a little bit the opposite just as a way of introducing this, that when we were moving to Portugal, we had been living in Switzerland and we were talking with a friend there who liked to go on holidays to Portugal and she told us about the Rota Vicentina. And this was at a time when we knew about the Camino de Santiago in terms of the Camino Frances, Mm -hmm. but we weren't aware that there was a Camino in Portugal or multiple Caminos in Portugal that you can walk. So we moved to Portugal and we bought a guidebook and there was a little box text in the guidebook talking about the Rota Vicentina. And because we liked hiking, we hadn't done any Caminos, but we liked hiking, we thought, hey, this is something that we can do. Well, five and a half years later, we finally did it. And in the meantime, did five different Caminos uh, that we'd never even heard of uh, at the time that we moved to Portugal, more or less. Yeah, it's really funny to, you know, look back on the plans that you make for years ahead and how they always change. Like, we always make all these travel plans and then randomly I'll come across a chat that we had with each other years ago when we talked about these things that we were going to do and maybe we ended up doing them but in a completely different order and, you know, you just never know where life is going to take you. We certainly didn't know that the Camino was going to become such a huge part of our lives. Um, but yeah, we finally did this Rota Vicentina walk, so let's talk about it. Right, so we're going to talk about it today in three different ways. Firstly, we're just going to introduce the walk a little bit and give some practical information. After this, we're going to go through what we saw as the highlights of this walk. And finally, just we're going to talk about a couple of discussion points that came out of it, and uh, we'll see where that leads us, uh, also in relation to the Camino de Santiago itself. So the first thing is the name and the origin of the name and the pronunciation of the name. Since you're the resident language expert here at the Spirit of the Camino podcast, um, why is it uh, why is it pronounced the way that it is? Why is it pronounced the way that it is? Meaning that Hota is pronounced with an H sound at the beginning? Yeah. So firstly, uh, Hota means root. And so it's R-O-T-A, but pronounced more, as you said, like Rota. Mm-hmm. Or really in Portugal, it's, I think most Portuguese accents have more of a guttural sound, so it's more like Rota. Um, and then Vicentina uh, refers to Vincent, uh, specifically Saint Vincent, who is the patron saint of Portugal. Patron saint of Lisbon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Patron saint of Lisbon. <laughs> and also Valencia in Spain. Um, and so Vincent was a third century martyr uh, in Spain. He was martyred during the persecutions of the Roman Emperor Diocletian. And his body 
posthumously was said to have made its way to the southwesternmost point of Portugal, which is one of the finishing points of the Rota Vicentina. Um, and it's quite an interesting story that the the boat that took his remains was said to be guided by these crows and the crows had originally appeared right at his martyrdom to prevent vultures from uh, tearing apart his body and so it washed up on the southwestern shore of Portugal and then this became a, a place where Vincent a kind of cult of Vincent uh, emerged and where he was worshipped and then later after the reconquest of Lisbon in 1147 the king of Portugal the first king of Portugal Afonso Henrique decided to move the relics of Vincent up to Lisbon and then that's how he became the patron saint of Lisbon. And actually the symbol, the coat of arms of the city of Lisbon um, is a boat with these two crows symbolizing this posthumous journey of Vincent. And so the Hota Vincentina is the St. Vincent's route, you could say. Um, and there's also other nomenclature related to Vincent uh, as part of this trail that we're going to come to later in the episode. But anyway, that's what, why it's called what it is. Um, and yeah, you might be uh, tempted to say Rota Vincentina or something like that, mm -hmm. but Rota Vincentina, Rota Vincentina is more uh, the way that you pronounce it. And I think uh, when I first heard of it, I was calling it Vincentina with an N because the name is Vincent um, in English, but it actually doesn't have that, that first N. So it's Vicentina. Right. And so when you look up the Rota Vicentina or when you read a guidebook or look on the website, you're going to see typically two major trails that are talked about. And so it's presented in this way that you have two choices if you want to walk the Rota Vicentina. And the first is the so-called Fisherman's Trail. And this is, as you would expect, a coastal trail. And the second is the Historical Way, which is an inland trail. And so these are very much presented as two separate trails and it's true that they begin that way if you're walking north to south but basically at a certain point they pretty much merge and then you can kind of take your pick from that point on and so what most people do is they walk the fisherman's trail uh, and that's what we did as well and it starts uh, in a place called Portukovu and they've actually extended one more stage north of this but most people still start in Portukovu because it's easier to get to than uh, 10 kilometers further north um, but you can also start if you're walking north-south in a town called Santiago do Caseng and walk the historical way but these are going to merge in a place called Odesish and this was the fourth day at the end of the fourth day of walking for us walking north-south on the Fisherman's Trail and basically from that point on, pretty much every day you're kind of presented with two options, right? A kind of coastal option and a, an inland option. Hmm, yeah, I think I'd say that's mostly right. And yeah, they seem to kind of crisscross and sometimes there are multiple little loops that you can do and yeah, multiple options that you have. So when you look at the map, it looks a bit chaotic and confusing actually because there are all these squiggly lines going everywhere. Um, which just means that, yeah, you can kind of choose your own adventure. Yeah, the map is presented uh, so that the blue uh, lines on the map represent the ocean and the fisherman's trail, and the green lines represent the forests of the, of the historical way. Um, although I do think even as we were walking, we found that the markers sometimes were ahead of the maps. There were other options that we mm. didn't necessarily know about. So yeah, really you can you can pick and choose. Although if you are walking north-south, at the beginning you have to kind of choose one of the two. And then for the second half, you can really take it day by day. And that's cool to have a variety of landscapes rather than, you know, for example, sticking to the coast the whole day, the whole time. You know, after we'd done that the first four days, then we enjoyed the next day or so walking a little bit inland and it just was something different. Yeah, to give us some variety. I mean, the coastal scenery is really fantastic and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, but, you know, after a while, after you've walked along it for four days, then yeah, you've kind of seen it. And so it was nice to experience a different aspect of that part of the country as well and to see what it's like inland. Yeah, it is funny. Just as you mentioned that, that a little anecdote from our walk was that, yes, the first four days were along the coast. And as I said, it's amazing coastal scenery, but yeah, on the fourth day, you're not as excited as you were on the first day. Mm -hmm. And then we went inland for the fifth day. And then on the sixth day, at a certain point, we came back to the coast and you said something like, oh, it's really great to see the coast again. You know, it feels like ages since we've seen it. But of course, it was only a day and a half earlier. Um, but just going inland for a day and a half, it kind of renewed our enthusiasm to suddenly see the coast again. Yeah, that's true. And I do remember that moment of seeing that coast because I think it was a really particularly beautiful landscape when you just suddenly... It 
comes out in front of you, and you know you have this long line of cliffs in front of you, and、uh, it was just a really striking scene. But you're right, we had been seeing very similar things for for hours on end, just a, a day or two before that. And so we've already suggested、um, that we walked this from north to south, and that's the way that most. Hikers do it. I almost called them pilgrims, but we're calling <laughs> people who walk the Hotta Vicentina hikers. And yes, about ninety percent we've heard walk it north to south. Although there really is no specific reason for that.、Um, the Hotta Vicentina is waymarked in both directions equally, so you can walk south to north if you like. I tend to think the biggest reason is that it's just closer to Lisbon,、mm-hmm. to to the trailhead at the north, and so it's just easier to get there and start walking. And maybe if you're not sure how far you're going to go, it just makes sense to to do it that way. And there, I mean, we walked the entire thing, but there were quite a few people who only walked a few days. And、especially in terms of the coastal scenery, I think the northern part is considered the better part, and so some people will start in Porto Covo, just walk about four days, and then just get a bus or or whatever it happens to be back to Lisbon, which typically is where people are flying into or flying out of, or or in our case, just coming to、uh, um, because it's where we live. Yeah, the the number of walkers was noticeably higher in the the first days, and then it definitely leveled off. Not that it ever felt crowded,、uh, but we yeah we met other people in the hostels that we were staying in. Most of the other people staying in the hostels also seemed to be walkers. Um, and then after a few days, we weren't meeting any walkers. Like also on the trail, we were we weren't passing hardly anyone else. So、um, and then maybe towards the end, we started seeing more people again. So、um, and we'll talk about the ends because there are a couple of options for endpoints as well. And、uh, yeah, that gets a, a little bit. Muddies the waters a little bit, but yeah, maybe there are people starting, say, in Lagos or in Sagres, and then there are also people starting in Lisbon,、uh, and then in the kind of middle sections, I felt like there were far fewer walkers because there aren't that many people that seem to do the whole thing, which is what we did. Right, and so just one more point on the way marking is that there are two types of symbols, and the first thing is if you're used to walking Camino de Santiago like we are. Your yellow arrows and your shells are now gone.、Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not following these symbols. The symbol for the fisherman's trail is a blue and green marker, and that's generally the colours of the Hotta Vicentina itself. But if you're on the inland trail, it's a red and white marker.、Mm-hmm. But that's also interesting, or that's also helpful in terms of when you get a little bit further south. That you'll just have those markers, in, and in some cases you'll have both of them, maybe pointing in a different direction, and then you understand. Okay, this is the inland trail, the red and the white, and the blue and the green is the coastal trail. So that's helpful as well. Yeah. One of the things that we did, which we've never done on a Camino before, was we booked all of our accommodation in advance,、mm-hmm. and this was recommended to us.、Um, and I would say it was a good idea. There was one day in particular when we came to a town called Almagrav, and there was quite a large hostel. It's an HI hostel, and if you know HI hostels, you know they're usually quite large and unfortunately a little bit soulless. But they are large and have a, a big capacity. And one of the hikers who we'd met did not have a reservation and was turned away. They didn't have any room. Right. Um, yeah, I'd say particularly if you are walking on your own, and if you're hoping to have you know budget accommodation accommodation in dorms, then it's probably even more necessary to book ahead because there are some、um, certain days, like the day that that you were mentioning,、uh, when yeah the number of hostels is very small. Even though even if it is a big hostel, it, it did actually fill up because there were a couple of large groups that were staying there that day. Um, so yeah, if you want to get a hostel bed, probably a good idea to to book ahead.、Uh, we we stayed mostly in hostels, but we booked private rooms in the hostels, and I'm sure there are more options if you're looking for a private double room. But yeah, it worked out well for us this time、um, in terms of booking ahead. Obviously, there's a bit of a risk. You never know what might happen. You might get an injury, and or you might just need a rest day and not want to continue. Um, but in our case, it worked out well, and I found that in general the logistics were really easy compared to our last Camino last year, <laughs> which was probably about as tough as it gets, considering that it was in the midst of the pandemic and lots of places were closed, and it's a、uh, 
a very little known Camino and uh, yeah, just not much accommodation available. And so I was making lots of phone calls along the way and, you know, on several occasions was really unsure whether we were going to find a place to stay for the next night, but we always did. Um, but yeah, that was logistically a lot more challenging. This was really easy. You booked everything online, didn't have to make any phone calls. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about restaurants, I'm sure too, but uh, those were also plentiful. Food was always easy to come by. So uh, logistically, I felt like this was an easy walk to plan. Yeah, so the towns that you stay in or the villages that you stay in are small. And there's not a huge amount of accommodation, and that's why it is advised to, to book in advance. And, you know, there are different groups of people who are staying in these places. There's people who are hiking the Hotta Vicentina. There's also surfers in some of the towns. And then there are other tourists or other groups and things like that. So it's a kind of mix of different people, and they are, you know, pretty small places. So there aren't huge amounts of accommodation uh, available. So that's why it's a good idea to book in advance. Uh, and so there are no albergues as such, but as you mentioned, there are quite a few hostels and uh, we did stay in about three of those, I think. Yeah, I mean, really the, the word albergue or albergue de juventud mm -hmm. means hostel. When we say albergue, we tend to think specifically of pilgrims hostels on the Camino, but, um, you know, it actually has a more general meaning, which is just hostel. And you will definitely find hostels, I believe, in every single uh, stop along the way. There was at least one hostel. Yeah, and in the first stop where we started, which was in this village called Porto Covo, um, there's a hostel called the Ahoy Hostel, um, and that was perhaps the closest thing to an albergue, because basically everybody who stays there are hikers mm -hmm. uh, walking the Hotta Vicentina, because it's the starting point if you're walking north to south on the Fisherman's Trail. And yeah, the owner kind of... is very knowledgeable mm -hmm. about the trail as well. So I definitely recommend staying there because he's he's very keen to give all of his tips, some of which might have been a little bit outdated. Uh, but overall, I think it was very helpful for us to have uh, checked in with him before we started out. And, and he's really friendly and it's a great place to stay. Yeah, and I think basically all of his clientele are, are hikers. Oh, and another little tip uh, for staying in this hostel is that he's on booking.com, but he only puts a certain number of rooms or beds on booking. So if it looks like it's booked out on booking, it might not be booked out. And he does mm -hmm. that just so not everybody goes through that that route uh, and that there can be walk-ups or people who call or whatnot. So if you're interested in staying there uh, and it looks like it's booked out, it may be worth giving a call um, and there may still be space available. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't that hard to, to plan everything in advance. I mean, according to the official site, uh, you know, they list the stages. We deviated from these stages only twice, and on one of those occasions it was just that we um, merged two stages into one because they were quite short stages. But there aren't really that many choices of changing the stages. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things where you really can look and say, okay, well, day one will be here, day two here, day three there. It's not that you say, oh, we can do a, a longer day or a shorter day here, and then that changes the next day, and then that has a flow-on effect, and that can happen on a Camino. But that wasn't certainly wasn't the case for us because we'd done all this booking. But I really don't think that there were other places where we really could have stayed. No, there weren't many towns apart from the towns that we slept in. Oftentimes, you know, you were walking pretty much in wilderness for the whole day. So that is one consideration as far as food goes. You know, I said the food is plentiful, but um, it wasn't always plentiful, you know, during the walk itself. So you do need to bring, say, a packed lunch, which is something that we tend to always do anyway. So for us, that was normal. But yeah, that's one thing to keep in mind. Uh, but yeah, it is... Um, pretty sparsely populated area in general, I would say. So it's not like on the Camino Frances where you're passing through a different village every four or five kilometers. Yeah, sometimes we would not pass a village in between the starting point and the ending point of the day. And then a couple of other times, maybe just one other village that you would pass through. So yeah, it is quite remote, even though it's remote between the villages or between the towns, but the towns themselves, you know, they do have a bit of a vibe. And as I said, there are surfers and, and some other tourists and, and some hikers and, and, and people like that. Yeah, the vibe is is very different from, I'm again comparing it to the Camino Nascent, which we walked last year, uh, which goes through the Alentejo, through the eastern part of Portugal, which is very sparsely populated. And so there, 
yeah, it felt very different.、Um, you know, you were walking through wilderness all day, and often not coming across any villages until you reached your your final destination for the day. And then your final destination still felt very remote and cut off from the rest of the world.、Uh, whereas here, yeah, it's a very different vibe.、Um, lots of Uh, influences, international influences from you know various communities and different nationalities that are living there or coming there as tourists. So, for example, the food that's available is、uh, you have lots of different variety of different cuisines,、uh, which is something that you we didn't experience on the Communion Ascent. Yeah, it's a more international flavor within these areas of Portugal for sure. One of the things that people may have heard about, or certainly it's something that's Famous about the Hota Vicentina is that you spend a lot of your time walking on sand, yay, and on soft sand. And as you can see, this is a highlight for Wendy.、Um, for a lot of people, they find it quite difficult. But basically, just to set this up a little bit, a lot of the time you're walking on what you could call cliffs that are overlooking the ocean and headlands that are overlooking the ocean. But while they're cliffs. Uh, in terms of the the vertical rise of them, on the top surface of them, they're kind of like sand dunes, and so、mm-hmm. you have this soft sand, like you're at the the part of the beach that's furthest away from the water, and that can be kind of difficult because it's a little bit heavy to pick up your feet after every step.、Um, but as we know from previous、uh, caminos and previous seasons,、um, what you really like is the softest. Surface possible. Yeah, I mean that's just、uh, something very specific to my feet and this、uh, ongoing issue that I have with my feet,、uh, plantar fasciitis, which、um, makes it painful to walk long distances, especially on hard surfaces. And I've really noticed over the years, as I've learned how to manage this, that the surface makes a huge difference. So、um, cement, concrete is is absolutely terrible. The only thing worse than that is cobblestones.、Um, and then on the other end of the Spectrum, you have dirt and sulfur dirt, and then sand. And sand was the best possible surface for me to be walking on in terms of plantar fasciitis pain. And I really didn't have pain at all for the first few days because we were walking almost entirely through this soft sand, which I agree is tiresome.、Um, it does give you more of a cardio workout, and it is. More difficult overall on the body, but、um, for me, it's fabulous. Right, and so especially in these early days, walking south from Portocovo, there was quite a lot of this soft sand,、uh, and then there wasn't as much of it later on. But mostly, the surfaces are soft in general. You're walking walking on dirt paths.、Um, there was very little. Uh, asphalt or road yeah. walking, yeah.、Uh, and so if that's something that you're looking for,、uh, definitely、um, this is in general pretty easy on the feet. But yeah, some people do struggle a little bit with the soft sand. Moving on to the highlights of the Hota Vicentina,、um, and I have written an article on our website, spiritofthecamino.com, listing some of these highlights. And I thought it would be worthwhile to just go through them now, so people have an idea of what they're in for if they choose to walk this route. Firstly, we've—I mentioned earlier that it was around 220 kilometers. So you're looking at, in terms of the official stages, 13、uh, stages. We did it in actually 10 because we. Didn't do this very first short stage, and then we later combined a couple of things. But you're looking at about ten to thirteen days of walking.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest highlight, and let's face it, the reason that everybody does this more or less is the coastal scenery, and that's、yeah. what makes the Fisherman's Trail what it is. I was interested because I kind of have thought while we were doing it, I wonder how many people actually walk the historical way because it、mm-hmm. seems to me almost pointless because <laughs> if you're looking for Like I don't really think it's that historical. They give、yeah. it that name, but you could do a Camino or something different, a different walk in other areas of Portugal and get a lot more history.、Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not a coastal way. Basically, it's an inland way, and then they've kind of got to jazz up the name a little bit to make、mm-hmm. it more appealing. Although I did, I, I posted some things. Uh, various places on the web, and one or two people did say that they walk the historical way. So some people do it, but most people really walk the Fisherman's Trail, and they're doing it for the coastal scenery, and that's the biggest attraction、uh, of this walk for sure. 
Yeah, and you know, it, it is famous for the coastal scenery, and rightly so. I mean, it has to be one of the most spectacular coastal walks in the world. That's almost exactly what the official website says about <laughs> its own walk. You know,、um, but yeah, and I mean, it's when you say coastal scenery, that can mean different things.、Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's there are beaches, but it's not just beaches. It's really a whole collection of of really interesting and and amazing. Elements. So you have beaches, you have cliffs. Sometimes these cliffs are white, sometimes they're black. You have volcanic rock. You have rock formations coming out of the water. Sometimes coming out of the sand. Sometimes you have these little coves、uh, that are pebble coves. The color of the water can be different colors of blues, different greens,、mm-hmm. um, and so it really is. Yeah, it really is quite extraordinary. And as you're going in, in, in different areas, you kind of see different types of, of scenery. So, I mean, even though we did say, you know, after four days, you're not as excited as you were on the first day. It's not as though within the first hour you've seen everything that you're going to see. It's going to keep changing as you're、mm-hmm. going. Yeah, that's true. And it's not just you know a huge stretch of of white sand as far as the eye can see. It's the beaches are mostly small beaches, mostly little coves that are surrounded by these cliffs, and the cliffs. Are what really makes it for me.、Um, I think that's definitely the most interesting part because they do change, like you said. There are different colors and different、uh, shapes and sizes, and、um, and they're changing too because they're always eroding.、Uh, so if you're a geologist or you're into geology, you would absolutely love this. Actually, when we were walking, I was sometimes thinking about when we went to Antarctica. And we were on this Antarctic cruise, and they had specialists from various fields. There was a, you know, someone who specialized in birds, and someone who specialized in, I don't know, fish.、Um, but they were telling us all about the science of of Antarctica, and then they also had a geologist on board. And the others kind of made fun of him, like whenever he wanted to tell us about the rocks, and you could tell that he was all excited about the rocks. And you know, then they're like, "Come on, they're here to see the whales. They're here to see the penguins. They don't care about your rocks."、Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It made me think about how much he would love that scenery and how, yeah, it really is pretty amazing. Yeah, there's one particular photo that I took that I, I like quite a lot, where you've got. The water, which is this amazing blue, and it's all sparkling, and then there's this black cliff that sort of descends into the water, and the black cliff looks like it could be in Mordor from the Lord of the Rings, but then it's this paradise water that it it just comes into, and so it's just this strange juxtaposition of of two completely different and seemingly alien types of of scenery. So yeah, I mean, if you love coastal scenery, then this is the walk for you. It's it's incredible in in that regard, and you know that's that's clearly the The key selling point of of the whole thing, and you know, it's very rugged as well. It, it's on the one hand pristine, on the other hand rugged, which seem to maybe not go together. But you know, you'll be walking on these cliff tops, and you'll see beaches that are just completely pristine. There's nobody there at all.、Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's pretty much impossible to get to them. Right, right. So sometimes, yeah, you can't. Other times you can, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And so, you know, there's there's this level of pristineness, but then other times, like you said, with the erosion that creates this rugged feel, and because you're walking on these sand dunes, and so, yeah, it's just it's a really interesting walk.、Uh, it's not like anything that we've done before. No. Because before we started walking caminos, the long distance hiking that we were doing was in mountains,、mm-hmm. and then since we've started walking caminos, it's inland. So we've never done a long coastal walk. And so this was really something new for us, and yeah, I mean the the scenery is what you know gets you up in the morning and、uh, keeps you going throughout the day. All right, the next highlight is related, and it's hiking on the beach. And this is something you know I was thinking about it as we were were doing this because you have quite a few opportunities to do this, especially in the first few days if you're heading from north to south. And last year when we walked the Camino Nascent, we walked on the beach on day one in the Algarve. And then we didn't see the beach again until day sixty, when we hit Finisterre, and then we walked on the beach again. And I loved walking on the beach at Finisterre, just before you get to the town,、mm-hmm. when you're on that beach、uh, where all of the shells are, and just to take off your shoes and you know have your、um, have the sand beneath your feet、um, was just a really amazing feeling, especially after sixty days inland. And so the Hotel Vicentina, it's it's almost cheating in that way because you're day one walking on the beach, day two on the beach, day three on the beach.、Um, but if that's a feeling that you really like, then you have that opportunity、uh, on the Hotel Vicentina. And yeah, it's maybe that's one of the things that 
make people think that it's not exactly like a pilgrimage because it's it's almost too easy you're you've mm -hmm. just started your hike and suddenly you're on the beach you've got the water you know coming up into your into your toes and you're just looking around at the scenery and it's all just you barely believe that you're you're on this big long hike yeah yeah and walking on the beach well i mean again i'm sure part of it was, for me was because of the the pain issue you know it, i didn't have pain when i was walking on the beach because it was on sand but it did always seem to make it easier like i remember one day we had a really long day because it was one where we had combined two stages into one and i was kind of worried about whether i was going to make it all the way through but the last part was was walking on the beach and so i was really quite okay because yeah that just gave me new renewed energy and i could just enjoy a nice walk on the beach right and so typically as always when you're walking on the beach you can go closer to the water and it's a little bit harder sand and that makes it easier to mm. to walk in sometimes we took off our shoes sometimes we didn't just depending on on the beach and so there are you know officially a few opportunities to go down to the beach there are also and you notice this once you start walking the Hotel Vicentina some unofficial options as well so there were some times where the actual marked path went back up to the cliffs but we've been told you can actually walk along this beach as well although you can get yourself into trouble <laughs> yeah not too much trouble but you just have to be mindful of the access to and from the beach so sometimes because typically you're on these cliffs and you have to descend to get mm -hmm. to the beach and so sometimes there are wooden staircases that have been purpose-built and so you can go down to the beach that way but there were a couple of occasions where there wasn't an equivalent staircase at the other end of the beach and you kind of have to scramble up a little bit and possibly with the aid of a rope that had been put there so we did that once mm -hmm. and you know it was fine in the end but you know we had to sort of figure out exactly how to do it mm -hmm. uh, and then there was a second occasion where we met somebody who was coming the other way walking a dog. It was uh, not exactly a local person, but an expatriate who lived in the area. And they said, yes, there's a rope at the end, but it's quite difficult. And so we decided on that occasion to just go back up the staircase the way we, we had come and then walk along the top of the cliff um, for the rest of that stretch. Yeah, and there was another occasion when we were sitting on top of a cliff eating our lunch and we were watching two other hikers who had gone down to a beach and we knew that that was not the trail, that you weren't, according to the map, you were not supposed to walk on the beach at that point. But they did and we watched them and we had, you know, a wide view so we could see the other end of the beach and we were thinking, they're not going to be able to get out. There's, you know, there's all these rocks and there's no way that they can get around that. And uh, yeah, they eventually realized that for themselves and they turned all the way back and yeah, lost a lot of time. And we were way too far away to be able to yell at them to warn them. Um, so we were watching this all from afar and they were this just these two tiny dots, but we recognized their clothes because we had passed them earlier. So um, yeah, you, you can get in trouble, you know, in the sense that you might have to turn around if you can't get out the other side yeah worst case scenario is you turn around you walk some more on the beach and mm. have a nice little a nice little walk on the beach and then uh, and then you find the regular path again but yeah there are you know we we had been told at the beginning in in this hostel in portokovu that you can basically stay on the coast and essentially on the beach uh, the whole way pretty much all the way down to the southwestern uh, coast but we did veer inland and then yeah sometimes we took the beach path and sometimes we took the clifftop path and then sometimes the the inland option as well our next highlight is something that will be very familiar to pilgrims from the Camino de Santiago and that is seeing storks but and I mean storks are always such a, a great highlight of the Camino I'm not sure what it is but whenever you see a stork you're always excited you're always happy and you're always pointing it out to anybody who's near you storks are pretty cool they are pretty cool I mean in, you know compared to all of the other birds that you might come across they're they're quite distinct they're quite large with these and, and they also have a bit of mythology about them you know we grow up hearing about the storks bringing the babies and so yeah it's always like oh there's a stork it's almost like oh there's a dragon Dragon, or maybe not quite like that. <laughs> yeah, dragon light, let's say. Um, but on the Hotta Vicentina, you have storks with a difference, which is that you can come face to face with storks, and that's really amazing. So when you're walking in the Camino, or really when you're traveling in, in Spain or Portugal, you might see storks. Typically, the nests are on top of telegraph poles sometimes, which is the not so romantic version. Sometimes they're in church towers, which is quite nice, but you're looking up at these nests and then you know if you're lucky you'll see a stork flying or you might just kind of see it in a distance you might have to crane your neck um, to see a stork nest or to see a stork above you on the Hotta Vincentina because of the 
the topography, because of the way the landscape is, the storks will build their nests on these cliff tops, and sometimes they're natural towers or natural, you know, cliffs which which are uh, suitable for that purpose. But because of the way that the the trail is, you might be right eye to eye with that uh, with that nest. It might there might be a gap, you know, in the in the cliff or something like that. But you might be eye to eye, or sometimes they're actually way below you. You'll mm-hmm. be walking on top of the cliffs and you'll see, you know, a, a much sh- a shorter cliff down below and you'll see a, a stalk there. But that means you can look down into the nest and then you can see eggs, which we saw once, mm-hmm. uh, or babies, which you've heard other people talk about as well. Uh, and so it was just cool because, you know, we always like storks as we've been talking about, but it's, it's a different uh, viewing and a better viewing than what you typically get. And there was one uh, occasion in particular, uh, this was on the third day, I believe, which is noted as being a famous place for storks. And there was one nest in particular, and the nest was enormous. And I don't know if it's just that you have the perspective being much closer to it, that you can see the real size, and that all the storks' nests are that big. I don't think so. I think that was a really huge nest. It was a really huge nest. And so I kind of uh, stood and and watched it for a while and took some pictures of the the storks, and, um, and that was really cool. So there are only a few places where you see them. You're not seeing them you know, many, many times every day. But when you do see it, you do tend to get a a different perspective from when you're on the Camino de Santiago. So we thought that was really cool. Yeah, for sure. Our next uh, highlight is sunsets over the ocean. And as a a walk that largely takes place on the west coast of Portugal, as you would imagine, you do get these sunsets over the ocean. Uh, One thing to point out though, firstly, is that some of the end of stage destinations are not actually on the coast. You might have to walk inland for a couple of kilometers, uh, but then sometimes they are. So when you're staying in a, a village or in a town that's on the coast, that's something you can do is really take advantage of the sunset. And it was interesting that one of these towns we went to, which is called Zambujero do Mar, the, there's a, actually an excellent hostel there, which is called Hostel Nature, and we really love staying there. We really highly recommend mm. it. And the, it's a family-run place, and the owner of the of the hostel was very was very friendly, and he basically said to us, "The highlight of this town is the sunset." Mm-hmm. And we, I later read something that said it was the most famous or the best sunset in Portugal at this town, Zambuchero do Mar, because there's a kind of a, a big lookout point, almost a, a corniche or a, a large kind of balcony type of thing, um, which looks due west. And then you have, you know, some headlands and some rocky sections, but the, depending on the time of year, but for us, the sun set, you know, right in a place that we could see from there. And, uh, that was, that was a highlight. And then there are other places. I think when we were in Porto Covo, it looked like there would be a good sunset there, but it happened to be cloudy that day. And so we didn't see the sunset that day. And then obviously when you get to Sagres, which we're going to talk about next, and to the Cape, which marks the southwesternmost point of Portugal, then you're going to get a great sunset over the ocean there as well. Yeah, just one thing to mention. I know we're talking about highlights now, and this is kind of uh, the opposite, but it made me think about this when you said that, yeah, had the hostel owner has said the main attraction of our town is the sunset. Um, as that, you know, as that might indicate to you, there aren't that many attractions in the towns. Like in general, I found that the attract the towns themselves were not that beautiful and not that interesting. There was a fair bit of modern architecture and um, often attempted to do to build these modern buildings in you know something resembling a traditional style. But it was quite obvious to me that these were not traditional Portuguese towns for the most part. Yeah, it's it's un- slightly unfortunately it's not like a a Camino or a typical Camino where you might, at the end of your day's walk, be able to have uh, a nice exploration of the town and go and see a castle or a church or whatever it happens to be. Um, it's really all about the scenery. The next attraction is the Cape of St. Vincent itself. So this is the southwesternmost point of Portugal. It's where the St. Vincent was said to have washed up or his remains were said to have washed up. And so the Cape itself is named for him. And this is near the town of Sagres, which uh, people may know of. And this typically is kind of the end of the Hotta Vicentina if you're walking north to south. There is an extension, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But this is kind of the destination point. I mean, the Hotta Vicentina, it's not a pilgrimage where you're trying to get to Santiago or to somewhere else in particular, but it is kind of the end point that that you're thinking of. For example, we met a few other hikers and they didn't have enough days to go all the way there, 
that they were going to do a few days of walking and then they were going to try to take a bus to, to go there at the end, as if that、mm-hmm. would sort of be the place where it made the most sense to kind of finish up. Yeah. And some other people that we met, the Italian women, when we asked them, how far are you going? They said, Campo de San Vicente, you know, we're going to the Cape, not we're going to Sagres, because that was our actual end stage, because you can't sleep at the Cape. There's no accommodation there. So we continued walking another six kilometers to Sagres, but, but actually there are shuttle buses.、Um, so you could just finish your walk there, right there at the Cape, and then take a shuttle to, to Sagres if, at, at the end, if that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. So the Cape is famous for a couple of reasons. Firstly, as we've mentioned,、uh, because of the story of St. Vincent. Secondly, you know, this is romantically where the Portuguese looked out and gazed out into the ocean in the 15th century and, and saw nothing and wondered what was on the other side or what would happen if they kept sailing in that direction. And so the Portuguese age of discovery is, you know, wrapped up in, in this kind of myth. Henry the Navigator, who's the father figure of The Portuguese Age of Discovery was said to have this school of navigation in Sagres、um, that's been a little bit mythologized、um, over the centuries. But basically, you can certainly see as you're looking out there, thinking to yourself, yeah, what, what could be out there?、Um, certainly、mm-hmm. at that time when they didn't know of the Americas, that would have been a powerful incentive for them to get in their ships and, and sail away. There were other incentives、um, as well, of course. But You know, it's cool to be on that spot and think, hey, this is where they looked out and decided that they would get in ships and, and see what they could find. And so it is a popular tourist spot. And that's another thing. It's funny that some people, and, and this was, I don't know if we'd seen this before, but we saw it afterwards. But when we were there, we were kind of thinking about Finisterre. Uh, yeah. In Spain. And then later we saw other people make this same comparison because you have the lighthouse, you have the, the view out over the ocean where you see kind of nothing looking to the west, but you have all these cliffs. And so it's a really dramatic landscape. But then you also have people who are day trippers or, or, or tourists who are coming to that spot as well.、Mm-hmm. And so when you're walking in a remote area and then suddenly you come to a, a much more kind of populated area with visitors, it's just a little bit of a different feeling. Yeah, and I think I had the same feeling largely at reaching the Cape than I, as I did when we、uh, reached Fisterra,、um, which is, yeah, a little bit of an anticlimax, a bit of a letdown.、Um, I've talked about this before, and, you know, to be honest, I felt this、uh, at the end of every Camino in Santiago as well, not just at Fisterra. But, Yeah, I think the, just the shock of, of having the tourists there, even though, you know, the towns all along the way were a bit touristy as well. So in that way, it shouldn't have been so much of a shock, but to just be suddenly surrounded by all these people who just arrived in a bus when you've spent the past, you know, whatever, eight or nine, ten days walking there. Yeah, kind of, you're thrown into this other world and you're reminded of this other civilization. And, you know, there's all these souvenir stalls and everything, and it's quite jarring. So. And food trucks, even. <laughs> yeah, food trucks, yeah.、Uh, one of which said in German, <laughs> the last Bratwurst、uh, before America.、Mm-hmm. Um, so that gives you a little bit of an idea. But yeah, there's a couple of souvenir shops,、uh, there's a bar there. And we had both been there before, and so maybe that added to it as well. But I mean, it's a beautiful view looking out, you know. It's, it's really great in that way. You just have to be prepared that there are going to be suddenly this influx of people who you haven't seen for the last eight days. One of the things that we did do, and maybe this is a, you know, a good tip for other people, is that if you walk a little bit further on, about a kilometer further on, there's some ruins of a fort. And so when you're at the Cape itself, there's a lighthouse and, and, and things as well. But you go to this fort and there are far fewer people there. There's just a trickle of sort of interested visitors. If they have their own car, for example, they might stop and just poke around for a couple of minutes at this fort. And so we actually took our, had our picnic lunch and we had it there. And that was a lot more peaceful. And we were able to kind of contemplate, you know, reaching this southwesternmost point of Portugal and of Europe、mm-hmm. uh, in a bit more silence. So that was quite nice. Yeah, I was really glad that we did that. Okay, a couple of final highlights quickly.、Um, you know, we've mentioned that the coastal scenery is what this is all about. And so people tend to say that there's no culture, for example, on the Hotel Vincentino. It's not quite true.、Um, there are some, let's say, historical touches or flourishes. Certainly, if you're really looking for a lot of history, then you're not getting it、uh, on the Hotel Vincentino. But there are a couple of places where you can see it.、Uh, the village of Algezur, which is one of the end of stage destinations, has a castle which was built during the, the Muslim、uh, presence. 
in the 10th century and uh, it has a church, an old church as well and then near there actually on the next day we made a slight detour or you had this option of, of making a detour to go to this particular place on the coast where there were ruins of a Muslim fishing village uh, that had been excavated and they had signposts up and there wasn't really much left in terms of the actual ruins but the location was on top of this cliff and it was quite spectacular to, to look out from there. Mm -hmm. uh, in the town called uh, Kahapatera, mm -hmm. um, which was, I think, uh, the following day, or that's the, at the end of that same day, there is a, a church which is a Mamuline church, and, and Mamuline architecture is a, a very typical Portuguese form of architecture from the late Gothic period, late 15th, early 16th century. And so this was a whitewashed church which retained a couple of its original Mamuline features. So there are just a couple of little things like that, mm -hmm. uh, nothing to get massively excited about but i thought it was cool just to see a couple of little things just one castle and, and you know one historic church at least just to give a bit of variety from the coastal scenery yeah and so if you're interested in history then you can seek those things out and there's information about those historical uh sites on the website as well there's quite a good website official website for the Holta vicentina uh so they have uh, daily descriptions that talk about things that you're going to pass along the way. Sometimes we looked for them and couldn't find them. Um, so sometimes the ruins must be really quite scant because we walked right past them apparently and, and couldn't see anything. But uh, other times, yeah, there were really, there were interesting things that we, that we probably wouldn't have, we might well have walked past them if we hadn't read about them. But then because we knew they were there, we looked for them and we did find them. Like dinosaur footprints, for example, mm -hmm. on the beach, which is uh, yeah something I'd never experienced before so that was cool so yeah if you want to find those little things I think it's it's worth checking out the website yeah and then just a final point on that I mean even if it's not full to the brim with historical attractions you know the the idea that that means that there's no culture is also mm. something that we wouldn't really agree with and you know we found it interesting as always when you're walking in in a certain region if you're talking to local people if you're eating local food and things like that then you're consuming some of that culture and speaking of food that's our, our next highlight actually um, and we were quite surprised and pleasantly surprised by the veggie food scene on the Hotta Vicentina because obviously you would expect it and uh, there is a big seafood scene there mm. um, but given that we are vegetarians um, we were happy to see that there was a veggie food scene yeah I mean we've always found a way to make it work you know we've always um, very often that's meant some really basic meals like uh, in the worst of cases grabbing a can of chickpeas and some bread and mushing the chickpeas into the bread and, and making a little faux tuna sandwich out of it. Uh, we did that a few times on the previous Camino. Yeah, we usually have some tomatoes or something else to put in there as well. It's not <laughs> usually just chickpeas and bread. Oh my god. Um, yeah, but in, in most cases in, in rural Portugal, you know, in places that don't see tourists, the traditional Portuguese cuisine is not very vegan or vegetarian friendly at all. So um, you can, you won't starve, but it was never a gourmet experience. Whereas this time we actually had some really amazing gourmet meals. And yeah, I was absolutely amazed at how many vegan and vegetarian options there were everywhere we went. Like it was never an issue at all trying to find veggie options. And they were always, you know, clearly marked on the menus. In some cases, there were fully vegan restaurants or vegetarian restaurants. And in other cases, uh, they served a bit of everything, but they had, you know, lots of clearly marked vegan options, including vegan desserts. And um, I was pretty blown away because uh, that's not what I think of when I think of small towns in Portugal. Yeah, and again, it's this you know, international aspect of, of some of these towns, uh, given that there are expatriates in the area uh, and tourists and surfers and whatnot, and hikers. And so I felt that the further south we went, the more we saw of this. I mean, there were always veggie options, you know, in the first few days, but then um, we started to, to get some really gourmet options. Um, there's a little uh, pizza chain, and, and I say a chain because there are three restaurants only, and they're all on the Hotta Vicentina, which is quite interesting. One in Ahifana, uh, one in Algezur, and one in Sagres. It's called At Bianca. Um, and this was a pizzeria and they had some some veggie and vegan pizzas as well as as uh, regular pizzas and so we went to two of those three mm -hmm. uh, and we really liked it there there's another restaurant called alacrim which is the portuguese word for rosemary and that was in cajapateta but the absolute 
most amazing restaurant that we went to was a place called Piscu, and that was in Villa du Bispo, which is the one stage before Sagres. And this is a, a restaurant that was also not a, a fully vegetarian or vegan restaurant. No, it was mostly. Most of the dishes were vegan, I'd say. But it's incredibly popular. You basically have to book. Uh, even if it's a weekday, we and I mean we were there early in the season, you know, early April on a Thursday night, and we were actually very lucky because we didn't realize you had to book. And we walked in, and they had a table for us. And then someone walked in twenty seconds after us, and they said we don't have any tables. Mm -hmm. And so we got lucky. And then you know, and then people just kept pouring in, and they kept turning people away if they didn't have uh, reservations. And then. We could also hear that they were talking on the phone that people were trying to make reservations, <laughs> and you basically have to reserve. We just got very lucky uh, on that night, but the food was absolutely amazing there. And you know, it was just interesting because Villa de Bispo seems like a, a bit of a nothing town. Yeah, I'm I'm bummed that I have no absolutely no reason to go back to Villa de Bispo because I would love to go back to that restaurant, and maybe that's reason enough alone because I feel like it's for me one of the best restaurants in Portugal. Um, but yeah, I don't know why it's there. And I, we actually asked the, the waitress who was German, but of Polish origin. Um, and we noticed that, yeah, there were, she was speaking German to, to some of the other tables. And she said, yeah, we get a lot of German tourists here, which is something we uh, noticed in general on the Hotel Vicentina that a lot of the expats and tourists were German. But I was trying to say in a polite way, like, why do people come here? <laughs> because Vila de Bispo is not even on the coast. It's a bit inland. And um, yeah, it just doesn't seem to have much appeal to me anyway. But for some reason, lots of people seem to go there. So um, yeah, the result is it, that it has this amazing veg forward, uh, mostly pizza restaurant. They have some other dishes as well, but I definitely recommend the pizza there. Finally, what we wanted to discuss was just a few points, a few little extra points, um, just to sort of see what comes of it. Um, and the first one is just related to the fact that you're, what you're doing if you're walking from north to south is that you're walking along the west coast of Portugal and then once you hit the St. Vincent's Cape, the Cabo de São Vicente, you're at the southwesternmost point of Portugal. And you can now continue for officially three more stages to Lagos. And Lagos is a place that's well known. It's long been on the map in terms of a, a coast destination in the Algarve. And so this is now walking along the south coast of the Algarve and walking towards the east rather than walking south on the west coast. And you know, when people think of the Algarve, what you're thinking of is then what you have on these subsequent stages from Sagres uh, to Lagos. And so the areas that we were walking in the Algarve further north of that were still quite remote and they, they didn't have mass tourism. We've talked about that there was a little bit of tourism, but there's no huge, uh, I don't know, high-rise hotels or no. mansions, which we'll come to, mm -hmm. uh, or things like that. It's a very low-key tourism. But then once you hit Sagres, you're now in, you know, the, the idyllic Portuguese Algarve, which is famous, you know, around the world. And so... Well, idyllic... Yeah, the, the mainstream Portuguese Algarve. Yeah, let's call it that, the mainstream Portuguese Algarve. Um, and so we decided to walk to Lagos um, because we had the time and because a long, long time ago, you used to work in a bar in Lagos and hadn't been back since in over 20 years. And we thought oh, it'd be fun to finish in, in Lagos because that's now the furthest extent of the Hotel Vicentina. And so if people want to continue walking these two or three stages to Lagos, you just have to be aware that it's different. The feeling mm -hmm. is different. You're suddenly seeing a lot more people, a lot more surfers, a lot more tourists. Uh, towns like Luz are very touristy, are just full of tourists. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are yeah, these housing developments for expatriates and some of these big mansions that you can see, which unfortunately do take away from the landscape a bit because suddenly you're seeing man-made structures uh, around you. Yeah, so it's not just that the towns are super touristy, which they are, but from, you know, in between towns, from one town to another, you'll have hills, which would have been, you know, total wilderness. Uh, like, that's what we'd been experiencing up until that point. Uh, but now you have, yeah, these big mansions up in the hills instead. So yeah, I felt like that really changed the vibe a lot. Yeah, for sure. So would you say overall that it's worth doing these extra two or three stages or not? I feel like the Cape is a much, it just makes more sense as an end point. 
So, I mean, yeah, I had a personal reason for wanting to go back to Lagos because, as you said, I have history there and hadn't, hadn't been back since. Even though we've been living for more than five years in Portugal, I'd still never gone back to, to Lagos where, you know, I did have this cool experience there when I was young. And uh, so for me, that made sense. And I don't regret that we did it. And in a way, you know, even though I didn't like that part of the coast or the way that it's been developed, I still am grateful for having experienced this other aspect of Portugal because now we've we've walked through lots of different parts of the country and we've seen lots of different sides of it and so I feel like you know that always gives me a, a better understanding of of the country that we live in so I don't regret it but no I probably wouldn't say that it's worth it uh, it, it particularly if you're someone who you know wants to kind of get into nature and get away from civilization, then I feel like that might kind of leave a bad taste in your mouth for the the end, the last couple of days of, of your walk, and, and that would be unfortunate, I feel. Yeah, so if you just really want to walk a couple of extra days, by all means do it, but yeah, just be aware it is going to be different and it might be a little bit jarring uh, compared with what you've seen. Now the next thing I wanted to discuss is this idea that people say it doesn't have a Camino feel at all. Mm. And it's not a Camino, so maybe it shouldn't. Mm. But what a Camino feel is or a Camino vibe is, is different to different people. Um, and there's different aspects to it. So would you say this felt like a Camino or not? I mean, if I had to strictly give a yes or no answer, I think I would lean towards no. Uh, no, I don't think it feels like a Camino. But uh, for me, I mean, I guess also my sense of what is a Camino has kind of evolved over time as well. But my initial sense of what finding the spirit of the Camino when we did the Camino Frances, which was our first Camino, I found it in the people. I found it in my fellow pilgrims who I was walking with and in the local people who we met along the way. And so we did make connections with fellow walkers this time. And we also had some nice interactions with some local people as well. So in that sense, like that was there, but I still feel like there was a something missing in terms of, um, you know, the connection with the fellow hikers. You didn't feel in the same way that you were like part of this bigger thing and that you had this mission that you were both accomplishing. You were just kind of both going on a walk and you happened to be on the same trail. Yeah, so it's a walking holiday rather than a pilgrimage and that can mean different things, but I think there is a separation there. I mean, the kind of interesting thing in terms of the social aspect of the Camino is that our last three Caminos have been We've hardly met any pilgrims yeah. on them for various reasons, because of pandemic or because we chose remote routes. And so, yeah, we we talked with other hikers, perhaps more than we have done recently. So in that way, it, it did feel a little bit like a Camino. But, you know, if, if Camino vibe to you is, for example, being able to go into or, or admire four or five churches in a day and go to Pilgrim's Mass and that kind of thing, no, you don't have any of that on the Hotta Vicentina. So overall, no, I mean, it doesn't feel like a Camino, but just in terms of the rhythm of your daily walking, you know, that's something that is, is like a Camino. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, there are some parts, yes, but no, overall, if, if you're looking for that real, as we call it here, spirit of the Camino, that's not exactly what you get on the Hotta Vicentina. Yeah, I agree. And so coming out of that, you know, we have never walked a coastal Camino. And the two obvious ones are the Camino del Norte in Spain or the Portuguese coastal. Would you say that having walked the Hotta Vicentina, that's made you more or less likely to want to walk one of these coastal Caminos? Hmm. So I have to, again, choose more or less one or the other? You can answer however you like. <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't say that it's made me more likely because I feel like I've kind of done that. You know, maybe the other coasts are very different than this coast. I don't know. You know, I've just said, like, any new and different experience, it always adds to my understanding of the world. And so I think there's always value in, in anywhere that you go because you, there's always value in seeing something different and learning something different. But no, I think in general, I, I'm glad I had this experience and, but I would probably tend to, you know, choose a more inland Camino instead. Yeah, I think we chose this as a kind of substitute for a coastal Camino. The idea was, I think we thought if we walked a coastal Camino, we're, we 
have this this worry that it's not going to feel like a Camino, mm. um, you know, as we've just been discussing with the Hotel Vicentina. But I think well, but the Hotel Vicentina is not a Camino, right? So I think that was why we said, okay, let's do this, and we'll get the coastal scenery, we'll mm. get the benefits of a coastal Camino, but we won't be thinking, well, this is not really a Camino because it, it isn't, and it's not supposed to be. So we have that the mindset is just different as you approach it. Whereas perhaps if we'd walked a coastal Camino, we might have said, oh, we would actually have preferred to have walked a different Camino instead. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, again, if you if you like coastal scenery, this is an absolutely brilliant walk for you. It doesn't really feel like a Camino, but you do have a, a little bit of camaraderie with other hikers, and and you do have the same you know rhythm of of walking each day, um, and so there are obviously similar similarities there. But yeah, I would say we have a list of Caminos that we're really interested in, and those two coastal ones aren't quite on that list or not near the top of that list at this stage, but each to their own. Uh, if you love the coast, then by all means, go and do those Caminos and, and come and do the Hotta Vincentina. Um, it's a, a trail that you can do almost year-round. They recommend not doing it in July and August, the summer months, because it's really hot. Right. But basically, they say you can walk it any other time. Um, the weather's usually pretty good in the south of Portugal, uh, and so it's definitely something to consider if you want uh, a really relaxed coastal walk for a few days. Yeah, and like we said, the logistics are really easy too in terms of finding accommodation and finding food. English is very widely spoken, uh, extremely widely spoken. I mean, I, sometimes it was a real fight to get people to speak to us in Portuguese. Um, and sometimes, you know, the people, even, you know, the staff in the hotels and the restaurants were not Portuguese themselves. So, yeah, if that's a concern for you, you don't need to worry about that. So, yeah, it has a lot of things going for it, and I do recommend it. All right, so having had this experience of the coastal Camino, we're now going to get back next month to the Camino de Santiago itself. Coastal Trail, I should have said, not Coastal Camino. <laughs> we're going to get back to the Camino de Santiago itself. And mm -hmm. so that's going to form the basis of the rest of the season of the podcast. We'll just leave it hanging a little bit here as to which Camino we're going to walk. But we'll mm -hmm. be back in the not too distant future uh, with more tales from the Camino. Until then, bon Camino. And buen Camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.